Anyone know whose kid's dying out there? That was quite the screen. Everyone's okay, I hope. All right. Uh, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Today's scripture reading is out of two places. We are in Luke and Acts. Luke chapter 24, verses 50 to 53, and then we'll push over to Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. Starting with Luke 24, verse 50. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Acts chapter 1, verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you uh, haven't guessed, today's uh, sermon title is The Ascension. Simply The Ascension. Forty days after Jesus rose from the dead and left his tomb, he ascended into heaven. Uh, Luke wrote of it twice, as we just read, once in his gospel and another in his early church historical count in the book of Acts. This past Thursday marked the 40th day from Easter Sunday, marking it officially as the day of ascension. And yet, how many of you, and to be honest, myself, how many of you took a moment to think about its significance and took a moment to give thanks to God for it? I'm guessing probably not many of us, right? As an introduction, I want to start by recognizing the fact that in most Protestant circles today, so anyone who didn't hesitate on Thursday to say thank you, Lord, for the ascension, um, you're not alone. You're in the majority, actually, um, especially the Protestant church in the West. We have largely ignored and therefore pretty much have forgotten about the ascension. But this is due, or this isn't due, but this is to our detriment. And this hasn't always been the case. The Apostles' Creed says, He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. The Nicene Creed states, And ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. When one of the elders here asks the question, which we try to do every week, Christian, what do you believe? And then we proceed to answer with one of those two creeds, which is our practice. We are admitting to what we might call basic Christian beliefs. Basic Christian beliefs, okay? Uh, mere Christianity, if you wish. All right? And one of those in there is the ascension of Christ to the right hand of the Father. If you don't believe that, you are technically outside of what we would call Orthodox Christianity. The Westminster Confession repeats this proposition in chapter 8, paragraph 4, where it adds that Christ is making intercession. The ascension is not a minor detail in the life 
and work of Jesus Christ. It has profound importance. But when we think of uh, the, the, when we think through the, the life of Christ, when we think of things like, what do we think of? Good Friday, we think of Easter Sunday, we think of, of Christmas, of course, right? However, whenever, whatever basically happened to the ascension, that's the question I have, is whatever happened to the importance of the ascension? The ascension has become an afterthought in most Protestant churches, if we think about it at all, right? Might our collective dispensational premillennial eschatology have anything to do with it? I would argue by and large, yes, but I'm going to come back to that later. I need to lay the groundwork of the ascension first, okay? So what I want to do today is I want to look at some of the details of the ascension itself, and then I want to show the importance of the ascension, and then lastly, how we live in light of the ascension. Okay, so let's start with the ascension itself. Luke, in his book of Acts, gives a little more detail regarding the ascension than he did in his gospel. In verse 9, we read, or we read, as they were looking on. Luke was a meticulous historian. I've mentioned this before. Luke was a meticulous historian, one of the very best in antiquity. And here he indicates from his extensive research, Luke wasn't there, uh, but he indicates from his extensive research that the ascension of Christ happened in front of many witnesses. Why is this important? For the same reason that God ensured that witnesses were there for Christ's birth. Witnesses were there throughout his life. They were there throughout his ministry. They were there throughout his miracles. They were there throughout his teaching. They were there for his death. And they were there for his burial. And of course, they were there for his resurrection. All of these actions have a point. And the point is they point to the person and work of Christ and essentially gives credibility to his claims, right? He claims some pretty outrageous things. You can't claim to be God in the flesh and have nothing to back it up with. Christianity is a religion of witnesses. We were not Joseph Smith in a dark room somewhere making stuff up from tablets that no one has seen since, right? We're not Muhammad, who had private revelations in a cave somewhere and came up with the expressions in the Quran, although the Quran was made later. However, Christianity was different in that from start to finish, there are eyewitnesses. There's eyewitnesses, right? God sent prophets to preach and call repentance to the nation of Israel. These prophets were speaking the very words of God. And in order for the nation to believe them, they were given heavenly gifts to prove themselves as being prophets of God. Jesus is our capital P prophet. Our capital P prophet. He made claims. He did miracles. His prophecies came true. And he always had witnesses to the major events which verified his claims. The ascension of Christ was no different. There were people present when this occurred. And then the text tells us that he was lifted up. He was lifted up. 
To be lifted up, to ascend in this context, carries more meaning to it than just the physical act of being raised up, to be lifted up into heaven. Enoch, in Genesis 5, if you'll recall from your Bible reading, was taken up. He ascended, right? We have no details regarding what that looked like. Elijah was taken up. We do have details about that one in 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 11. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Well, that sounds exciting, right? Seems like quite a show, quite an ordeal. I could only imagine what that would have probably looked like. Pretty amazing, no doubt. So when we get to the text that describes the ascension of Christ into heaven, and we simply read that a cloud took him out of their sight, it seems maybe rather anticlimactic. Not quite a, quite a big of a deal as it was when Elijah was taken up, for instance. However, we know this, that, that this cannot be true. It can't be true. Why? Well, for starters, we can say that Jesus is greater than Elijah. Jesus is greater than Elijah. It wouldn't make any sense for Elijah's ascension to be more of a spectacle than that of the king of kings, right? Second, we read from Luke 24 that those witnesses left after the ascension with what? With great joy. They were celebrating. This was amazing. Their king had just left. Sounds like a bad thing, right? And, and he left rather abruptly, and yet they were absolutely rejoicing at his departure. Why? Could it be that what they saw was simply breathtaking? How do you not, how do you not celebrate what you just saw? What kind of a cloud might have been appropriate for Jesus to be taken up into heaven by that would have impressed the eyewitnesses? Do you have any ideas? The glory cloud? Sound, sound familiar? The Shekinah glory that followed the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years? A cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night? This was the manifestation of God with his people. That cloud was the manifestation of God with his people. And it would have been a glorious thing to behold I like the old movies that try to show Moses wandering with the people in the wilderness and they've got the pillar of, cloud by, or pillar of fire by night and they've got the cloud by day. And even all those movies a number of years ago, a number of decades ago, make it amazing. And just imagine what they could do with the CGI and stuff they have today. But it's amazing. And finally... We have the two angels in Acts 1 and verse 11 who declared that Jesus will return in the same fashion that he just left. Now many tie this to the second coming in which all will see clearly his return. So it had to have been large. It had to have been magnificent. Right? Ultimately, when we look at the ascension of Christ, it is his coronation, his exaltation. It is... The highest point of office that Jesus is going to hold until he returns. Christ has entered into his glory. That's the point. Some of you may have witnessed King Charles' coronation just a week or two ago. I wasn't born when Elizabeth was here. Probably 
many of you weren't either. What was it that we were watching? What was it that we were watching? A coronation is a formal ceremony in which a person is given a crown, symbolizing their rightful place to rule and reign over a people. In an earthly coronation, the monarch pledges to fulfill his office, to work and fulfill his duties and responsibilities. So help me God, he might say at the end. Christ, in his coronation, also fulfills a role. He has duties, he has responsibilities, which have been given to him. So what I want to do is go over those three responsibilities. The first one, Christ is our capital P, Prophet. He is our prophet. Prophets speak to the people on behalf of God. Christ declared many times, as we've heard in the Gospel of John, and I'm going to quote a few here, that he spoke only that which the Father had sent him to say. John 7:16, he says, My teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. John chapter 8, verse 26 I have much to say about you and much to judge, but the one who sent me is truthful, and what I have heard from him, I tell the world. John 8, 28, so Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak exactly what the Father has taught me. John 12, 49, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Jesus was indeed the prophet, capital P, prophet, the one described by Moses that the people of Israel were waiting for. He came, he spoke. Why is there no need for further prophets? Meaning, what I mean by that is capital P, prophet, the office of the prophet. Why do we not have those anymore? Because God spoke through Old Testament prophets, and what did they point to? When they weren't calling Israel to repentance, what were they doing? Calling people to notice the Messiah. The idea of the prophets was to give prophecies which pointed to Christ, pointed to the Messiah, right? Then, what did we have? We had Christ come. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. On many past occasions and in many different ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But, it starts again, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. God has left us his word, right? God has left us his word. The Old Testament pointing forward to Christ for salvation, right? The New Testament pointing back to Christ for salvation. The canon is closed, right? The canon is closed. The writing of Revelation by the Apostle John was the last word. And everything we need to know moving forward has been said. Christian, you have your instructions. You have everything you need right here. Our prophet, capital P, prophet, has spoken. The Holy Spirit has written it down. We have our marching orders. We don't need 
any more prophets. Joseph Smith was a false prophet. Muhammad was a false prophet. Anybody else who says that they are speaking on behalf of God are false prophets. Capital P prophets, the office of the prophet is no more. Why? Because Christ fulfills that role. He is our capital P prophet. Second, Christ is our priest, capital P priest. Not only is our priest, he is our high priest. The role of the priest was to speak to God on behalf of the people and to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. Christ being our high priest, the one who enters the Holy of Holies, and he visits with God. Unlike the high priests of the Old Testament who are only allowed to enter once per year, Christ has entered the Holy of Holies and sits there now on a permanent basis. Instead of offering sacrifices for animals for the forgiveness of sins, he offered himself. He offered himself as the perfect Lamb of God. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was the sacrifice. He was the perfect high priest. The perfect high priest. As the one who sits at the right hand of God, we are told in Romans 8 and verse 34, it says there, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In this context, Paul is using the language of a courtroom. There is a notion of condemnation. There is a notion of condemnation. Someone must pay the price for sin. That's the accusation. Someone must pay the price for sin. Someone has. Our high priest, Jesus. And not only did he die for us, but he was raised. He was raised for us. And not just raised for us, but he has been exalted to the right hand of God. And what is he doing there? He is providing intercession on our behalf. He is our priest who is sitting at the right hand of God saying, I paid for that one, I paid for that one, I paid for that one, and so on. He paid the price. And he intercedes on our behalf. Our slate is made clean because of it. Our slate is clean. We are forgiven. Lastly, Christ is king. Christ is king. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. How do we know that? Paul writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 15. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I want you to notice that this is a letter from the Apostle Paul to Timothy near the end of Paul's life. Okay, There's a reason why I'm bringing this up. Paul acknowledges the reality of Christ's rule and reign. So when did he do this? Did he point forward and say, when Christ's second return comes to be king, that's when he'll be king. No. Paul died in either the late 50s or early 60s. So this letter was written right around that time. Christ was already on his throne. Christ is already on his throne. 
A king rules that which belongs to him. Right? Does that make sense? A king rules over that which belongs to him. So the natural question would be, what belongs to the king? What belongs to King Jesus? Romans eleven thirty six is helpful. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Christ created all things. Christ sustains all things. And all things are to him, meaning they belong to him. Christ rules over all creation. If I were to ask you, the congregation, what Old Testament scripture is most quoted in the New Testament, being biblical scholars out here, I'm sure you would give me the answer. And the answer is Psalm 110. Very good. Psalm 110. Let's turn to there now. If you have your Bibles, we're going to spend a little time in Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is called a royal psalm. It's a royal psalm. It was thought to be sung, a song that was sung at a king's coronation. It starts in verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 1 already sets up the psalm as being a messianic one. A psalm that was understood to point to the coming Messiah. Even the Jews 2,000 years ago and further back understood that this was a messianic psalm. Verse 1 says, The Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is Yahweh, the Lord. God says to my Lord, capital L, little o, little r, little d, meaning Adonai, sit at my right hand. David is referring to his son, meaning a descendant. Yet descendants, sons, are not normally addressed as superior. Yet David here, in the spirit, as described by Jesus in Mark chapter 12, calls his son Lord. David calls his son Lord. Jesus was a descendant of David. This is what makes it a messianic psalm. If Jesus is king, which he is, and is sitting at the right hand of God, which he is, then the rest of the psalm, the rest of Psalm 110, should be interpreted as a real-time event. A real-time event. Something that is happening during his reign. Yes? So let's look at them. Verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So God sends forth from Zion. What or where is Zion? Zion in the Old Testament was the location of the temple in Jerusalem. The place of God's dwelling, if you will. In the days when this psalm was, uh, was written, likely after the defeat of the Jebusites, um, which was the city uh, where Jerusalem is, it was renamed Jerusalem after David had, had uh, conquered it, uh, prepared to build a temple on the highest peak, and the highest peak was called Mount Zion. If Christ is the fulfillment of this psalm, which we believe it is, and the New Testament writers affirm this, 
which we know they do, then who or what is Zion today? Who or what is Zion today? The place of God's dwelling. It's still the place of God's dwelling. It's his temple. The question is, is where is his temple? The temple in the New Testament is the church. We see that. We are living stones. Christ's body. We are his temple. We are the dwelling place of God. Right? The church. God sends forth from Zion, his church, a mighty scepter. What is a scepter? I'll be honest, I had to look it up. I kind of thought it was something you hold. And it was. It's a staff. If you know what a staff is, it's a weapon. It's a big stick that you use as a weapon. Right? But a scepter from a king is decorative. It's not really used as a weapon. It's more, it's more uh, a symbolic it's either a big staff or a rod, and it's decorated with regal sim- uh, symbols, which, of course, symbolize rule and authority. So what does it mean, then, for God to send forth a mighty scepter? It means God is declaring everywhere he sends his scepter that it belongs to him. That it belongs to him. Abraham Kuyper has famously said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Mine. Everything is Christ's. Everything. Jesus is ruling even in the midst of his enemies, and he has many enemies. And how long will he reign in this fashion for? Verse 1 tells us, until I make your enemies your footstool. And what or who is the last enemy? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. The last enemy is death. Jesus will reign until death is defeated. God is not sitting back, wringing his hands, waiting to see what's going to happen. He is active in the suppression of his enemies. He is the one who raises up nations and brings nations down. He is in control and the outcome is not in question. The outcome is sure. Verse 3 shows how this is going to come about. In the power of Christ, God's people will rally to his service. They will gladly join him in the fight. Verse 4 shows the line of priesthood Jesus comes from. It is not the Levitical priesthood. Why? Because the Levites die. Levites die. But he comes from the eternal heavenly line of Melchizedek. Melchizedek means my king is righteous. My king is righteous. Verse 5 shows clearly Jesus sitting at the right hand of God and what he will accomplish while there. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath, it says. He rules over unbelieving nations and will bring them low in his time. Verse 6 continues to show his role as judge, judging the nations. 
Often we get unbelievers who read scripture like this and they're horrified at the language. To be honest, I've run into many Christians who find in their ignorance this kind of language horrifying. Because the language in here says what? It says filling them, the nations, the unbelieving nations, filling them with corpses. Now what do we do with that? Thought God was love, right? That's what we're always told. God is love. Don't judge all those other things. Well, what do we do with Jesus who declares that he will be filling the unbelieving nations with corpses? First and foremost, I think we need to recognize that mankind are sinners. We are sinners deserving death. Second, we need to recognize that God often judges wickedness through a variety of means, some of which bring death and destruction. Third, as unbelievers who are in their sins, they are what I often call the walking dead. We're fascinated with shows of the walking dead. Guess what? Unbelievers who are not in Christ are walking dead. Those who reject God in their sins are dead already. They are spiritually dead and they are simply awaiting for their physical death. Nations that reject Christ are already full of corpses. They're just corpses that happen to be walking around. Regardless of whether God directly judges them or not, they are already dead. He will shatter chiefs, the scripture says. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth, meaning he will bring low those rulers of nations that reject him and his law. So when we get wicked rulers, which I would say, chances are, I kind of consider our, our prime minister in that, in that light. He's a wicked ruler. But the people of Canada are wicked people. We get the, we get the government we deserve. Now here, we pray for our Prime Minister, and we encourage you to, prime minister, to, to pray for our Prime Minister. And it is appropriate from time to time to, pre, to, to pray imprecatory prayers upon our Prime Minister. Lord, save him or remove him is a perfectly fine prayer. And Lord, I don't care how you remove him. Right? First and foremost, save him. But if not, please remove them. Right? And this is what he does to rulers of nations that reject him and his law. Verse 7, he will drink from the brook by the way and lift up his head. While this is not an easy verse to understand from the Hebrew, it's not. There's all kinds of ideas as far as what, what that means. It just doesn't translate well from the Hebrew into English. I, what I understand it to mean is... Is like any general in a battle. There will be times of rest. There will be times of refreshment. There will be times when battles are stopped while the soldiers rest, but only for a short while. The king once again lifts his head. What that means, he lifts his head and continues on. It's time to move. The battle against his enemies will take time, and from time to time it may even appear that his enemies are winning. But we know better. Christ, our King, will lift his head up and continue on. 
So now that we know what the ascension meant for Jesus, the next obvious question would be, what does the ascension of Christ mean for us? What does it mean for the church? The first meaning of importance for us is that while we, like the apostles, can sometimes lapse into a sort of uh, despair, a depression, you ever caught yourself wishing that, oh, I just wish I could, I wish Jesus were here. You know, I'd like to see him, I'd like to shake his hand. You know, that'd be so cool. And then we have to catch ourselves. We want to see Jesus face to face and we want to say things like, I wish Jesus were here. Jesus had to remind the apostles that it was good for him to go. Jesus reminds the apostles, it's good that I go. Because he could not send the Spirit until he had ascended. John 16 and verse 7 says, But I tell you the truth, it is for your benefit that I'm going away. It is for your benefit. Unless I go away, the Advocate, meaning uh, the Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. See, we need to have a proper understanding of who God is in his Trinitarian ontology. Jesus is now God in the flesh. Jesus is permanently in the flesh. Right? Jesus, if he were still on earth, would be restricted in his time and place. Just like he was when he was here. Just like you and I are now today. But as he has sent his spirit, we have his spirit within each and every one of us. So that means wherever you go, there the Spirit is. Wherever you go, there Jesus is. Wherever I go, there Jesus is. We are his Zion. We are the jumping off point to send his scepter into the world. It is better to have the Spirit with us at all times, no matter where we are, than to have Jesus present on earth in one place at a time. John chapter 14 verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Some think this means that we individually have the power to do that which was greater than Jesus while he was here. I guess that's one way you can interpret that and many do. I think it's silly Jesus was the God-man. We are just man. Greater works in number we will do. Why? Because he has gone to the Father. But he sent his Spirit. We are the body of Christ, built to do the works that God has set before us. We number in the millions, if not billions worldwide, since his ascension. And how many more years until his return? How many more millions or billions of us will there be? And look at all the works we can do while we're here. He has created quite the army. An army that will get bigger and bigger over time. This army will accomplish much over the millennia to come. Second, we've been given a promise. We will see Christ face to face. In his ascension, he goes to prepare a place for us. We read that in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. 
He has promised us eternal life with him. And this is something wonderful that we should all be looking forward to. And I don't know any Christians that don't look forward to that. But there it is. Third, we know that through the ascension, the Father has accepted Christ as our sacrifice. This means our salvation is sure, that we no longer have to worry about our standing before God on the day of judgment. It's not something we need to worry about. If Christ did not ascend, we would have no assurance. Why was Jesus not exalted and glorified as he thought he would be from John 17? Are there further works required? That might have been a question, right? Our answer is no, because he did ascend. He is seated in the Holy of Holies. The sacrifice, his sacrifice, was accepted, and he is our propitiation. Fourth and lastly, we know that Jesus, who, is, who as already discussed, is our advocate before the Father. What kind of advocate do we have? We have an advocate who knows us. That's the beautiful thing. We have an advocate who knows us, who knows what it means to be human. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was tempted in every way that we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. When we find... Or when we feel as though life is hard, we can remember that Jesus was born poor and homeless. When we find ourselves upset with our relationships with others, we can remember that Jesus was betrayed by his inner circle, one that led to his death. When we lose someone we love and we can't find the words to describe the pain, we can remember Jesus lost Lazarus. And what did he do? He wept. He knows what it means to lose. Jesus knows what it's like to lose someone you love. When we feel rejected by our society or rejected by others, we can remember that Jesus was rejected by his own people. He came to preach the good news to Israel first. And his people rejected him. We have a savior who knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to be hurt. He knows what it's like to go hungry. And he knows what it's like to be tempted. You can go to him. You can plead with him. Because he knows exactly what you're going through. He's not a God that is just an ethereal thing up in heaven and is disengaged and has no idea what it's like to be human. That's not our God. Jesus came in the flesh. He lived a life that you and I are living. He's experienced many of the things we experience and worse. He is a high priest that we can go to. So to wrap up today, I want to once again... I started off giving a hint where I was going with this, and so here's the conclusion. 
I want to emphasize the importance of eschatology. I want to emphasize the importance of eschatology. The Western Church, I believe, with the rise of dispensational theology starting in the early 1800s, began a decline of orthodox teaching, especially around the ascension. When we adopt the idea that the kingship of Jesus starts when he returns, which is what many people think, especially in the Western Church, it is then that he will do, they believe that that's when he's going to do all the things that we discuss today. We essentially give up the fight. We give up the fight. Why bother? Right? We give up the advancement of Christ, we give up the advancement of his kingdom. And there has been much ink spilled over the past couple of years over a movement called the Christian Nationalist Movement. The question really is, should Christians be pursuing the righteous reign of Christ over everything? That's the question. Should Christians be pursuing the righteous reign of Christ over everything, nations included, by promoting the gospel and God's laws... Or should we just simply stick to preaching the gospel? That's the argument. Which one is it? There are many who believe that we Christians lose here. We lose here. But we have heaven to look forward to. So there is that. that that's the good news. We've got that to look forward to. But when we look at history, when we look at church history, we can see that this is a defeatist attitude that was not prevalent in any way, shape, or form from early on. We had something called Christendom, of which Western Europe and the Americas were part of. It was called Christendom. Was it done perfectly? No. Doug Wilson likes to call it Christendom 1.0. It's kind of a basic thing and you've got some bugs to work out. Did it, was it perfect? Not at all. Lots of room for improvement. However, when we see the direction of our society today that has rejected the biblical foundation of our nations, and it's even cheered on by some Christians in some circles, we must ask ourselves the question, which situation was better, the society with the Christian foundation or the one that we're experiencing today? Folks, I'm putting this nicely. We live in clown world today. We live in abject clown world. We can't even define what a woman is. And to make matters worse, while, we're, while we can't define what a woman is, we've got women screaming about the patriarchy. How do any of those things make sense? If you hold to one, you can't hold to the other, but we've got people holding to all, all kinds of things that make absolutely no sense whatsoever. And what's even more disturbing is they don't seem to care. If you can't define what truth is, if truth is just something you make up in your own head, then consistency really isn't a thing. It doesn't matter. Right? We live in a society of death, one that, that has rampant abortion. We live in a society of death, one that has recently just opened up the idea that, hey, you're depressed. We can always send you to the doctor so he can kill you. We'll even pay for it. I wish I were kidding, folks. 
Feeling down? Why don't you kill yourself? We'll help. That's the government helping you. Don't ever let the government help you. Right? This is what we call insanity. We as Christians must once again, must once again, I emphasize that, must once again embrace the kingship of Christ. We must embrace the kingship of Jesus, King Jesus, and be obedient to our calling. We must love and understand the importance of the ascension of Christ. We've lost that, and we wonder where things have gone sideways. Now we know. When you don't have Jesus on the throne, you have man on the throne. If you don't live by the Ten Commandments, you're going to live by the Ten Thousand Commandments. Which one do you want to live in? When we knock Jesus off the throne, it affects how we look at the world and how we interact with the world. So let's put Jesus back on the throne, folks. He's King Jesus, ruling and reigning today. Christians, we are his holy temple. And from this holy temple, he sends forth a willing and able people to battle him, battle his enemies, sorry, and our enemies, right? Claiming to rule over all that is his. And what is that? Everything. Jesus rules over everything. Jesus commanded us with all authority. And this is what's important. We all know the great commandment, but we somehow miss the first half. We just like to go to the go therefore, but we don't know what the therefore is there for. So let's back up and look at what the therefore is there for. All authority, it says. All authority. Where? In heaven, yes. And where else? On earth. In heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go. It's all mine. You are my people. You are my body. Therefore go. Make disciples of all the nations making disciples of all the nations. Disciple the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What should we expect from our efforts? Grief? Yeah? We'll get grief. Should we expect hardship? Yeah, we should expect hardship. Will we experience persecution? Yes, we will experience persecution. Will we get glory? Yeah, yeah, we will get glory. We are the body of Christ. Christ is glorious. We are the body of Christ. We will, in our obedience, see glory. Will we have peace? It's a trick question. Will we have peace? Peace of mind? Yes. And by the grace of God and his power, his kingdom will spread far and wide. And the good news is that our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren may live in a world that is far more moral and far more sane than ours is currently. So I'm going to end with this. John chapter 16 verse 33. And it reads. 
This is Jesus speaking. I have said these things to you. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Would you bow your heads? Heavenly Father, we come before you. We are thankful for the ascension. What a vital piece of the gospel is the ascension. What a vital way in which it affects how we live and how we interact with one another, how we interact with the lost world around us. Lord, help us to understand that all is yours. All is yours. And as ambassadors of you, as the body of you, we are sent forth as that scepter to make all things yours, to share the good news of the gospel so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and one day every nation will bow before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.